be in Nehemiah chapter 12, beginning in verse 27. And as you're turning there, let me bring you up to speed. It's been a few minutes since we have been in Nehemiah. We took a break for the Christmas series. And so this story that we've been working through is one that is often neglected in the Old Testament. But man, what a great book it is. It tells the story of an ordinary man that God used to do an extraordinary thing. He led a very unskilled but willing workforce, and they rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem in only 52 days, which was nothing short of miraculous. And that allowed the people of God to resume their relationship with God, so to speak. They could reinstitute temple worship, so on and so forth. And today we get to see uh, a great celebration that they have uh, that probably follows right after the events of chapter 9. Of course, we had some lists and some names between there and where we are now. Uh, but this shows us a, a few things about uh, ourselves and about them that we need to pay close attention to. So let's pray, ask for the Spirit's help, and we'll get right to work. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and illuminate these texts to us. We pray that we'd be informed in our knowledge of Scripture, transformed by the renewing of our minds, conformed to the image of Christ, and recommissioned on the Great Commission. Lord, help me, frail as I am, to serve us well in this time. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. <clears throat> All right, so let me say a couple things about this passage. A little different than most of the passages that we look at. Uh, this is basically two parts is how you could break this text apart. It's the wall dedication. It goes from here in verse 27 all the way down to verse 43. Uh, and in that last little section, you see some of the events that took place on that day. So it's really kind of like two snapshots in the photo album that Nehemiah is giving us. And there is uh, a good bit to learn from each one of those snapshots. But I will say this. Uh, it does not present itself in the way that most of our passages do. Usually I have uh, a number of very clear points. I make them very obvious for us. Uh, this passage does not necessarily lend itself to that. So this is going to be more of us explaining our way through it. And I will make some observations and applications and gospel connections as we work through it as needed. So that being said, let's go ahead and jump in right here in verse 27. <coughs> And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites and all their places to bring them to Jerusalem and to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, with singing, with cymbals, with harps and lyres. And really, if you want one verse to kind of summarize everything that's about to follow, it's really verse 27. It's a pretty good picture of what's about to happen. This dedication of the wall is similar to the one that we saw uh, when the temple was completed in Solomon's day, back over in 2 Chronicles 5-7, through 7, and the fact that they are using music, and look at those words there that have used gladness, thanksgiving, and then singing, cymbals, harps, and lyres. So it's a very joyous, <coughs> very festive time. And who is it led by? It says there that it's led by the Levites. Now, the Levites were kind of the uh, ancient worship leaders of the Old Testament. You see them mentioned time and time again throughout uh, the Old Testament. But this theme here of uh, thanksgiving and gladness is really one that we don't need to let slip away from us because it is replete throughout the Bible. A couple other examples here, just thinking about the concept here of joy. Psalm 11, or 1611, 
You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. The New Testament, uh, Jesus says this, John 15, 11, I have told you this so that you may have joy, and it may be in you, and that that joy might be complete. And then, of course, Paul says this, Romans 15, 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Christians are to be people of joy. And of course, we need to distinguish this from happiness, because there are times when we are happy, and there are times when we are not happy. The book of Ecclesiastes, which we've worked through here, uh, certainly talks about that. There's a, there's a time to be glad and a time to mourn. Uh, but this joy that goes beyond our circumstances, that comes from a right relationship with God and is rooted in the things of God, it should be something that we aspire to. It should be something that we pray for. It should be something that we seek to walk in by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, we won't always uh, that we're fallen, and the Bible says that our Creator knows and, and that our frame is but dust. Uh, we struggle, that's obvious. But the, the, the target that is painted for us is the, the concept that we see emerge in this, that just as these people dedicated the wall to Jer uh, of Jer around Jerusalem, and they brought in these worship leaders, and they had this great celebration— we should live our lives in that same Godward direction. We should dedicate ourselves to the Lord. We should seek to worship the Lord. We should seek to celebrate the Lord, live with gladness, live with thanksgiving, and sing, uh, even though we might not use cymbals, harps, and lyres. And so this joyous confetti in the air that we see here in verse 27, we want that kind of unshakable joy as the old kids song used to say, down, 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 deep in our hearts. And so that is something that we can take from this in a direction that we should drive. Now, to see just how big of a deal this is, look at verse 28. <clears throat> it says, And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Neto, <laughs> Netophetites, there we go, and also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmareth, uh, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. So the idea here is uh, there would have been some Levites living in Jerusalem proper at this time, but then a lot of these workers had also kind of spread out from there, and so they had uh, kind of made little villages around uh, Jerusalem during this time. If you think about it, kind of like there's the Nashville metro area, and then there's the places beyond that. There's the Brentwood, the Franklin, the Antioch, the Murfreesboro, you know, kind of that kind of thing. And so these workers were around there. And then it says in verse 30 that the priests and the Levites purified themselves and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. <clears throat> now what we're talking about here is a type of ritual, uh, ceremonial purification that would have been part of this section of redemptive history. Now, by God's grace, and we'll say more about this in a moment, thankfully we do not have to do this today because of the purity that is ours in Christ, but they would have gone through some kind or several kinds of 
ceremonial washings, maybe changing into clean uh, white robes, so on and so forth, to, to communicate, hey, this is a special day, this is a special thing that we're doing to dedicate this unto the Lord, and so we are purifying ourselves to be a part of it. It uh, followed the confession of their sin and was in line with what God had told them to do <clears throat> to separate themselves uh, and be a light unto the nations. So when we see this, I think several things ought to come to our minds. Uh, the first one is the holiness of God. And what I mean by that is that God is perfect. He is righteous. He has never made a mistake. He's never had a wrong thought, never done a wrong action. He is uh, uh, wholly unique in that way in that he is perfect in all of his ways. And so by them purifying themselves before they go before the Lord, so to speak, it communicates to everyone what the God of the Bible has said about himself and his nature. Uh, there's a great book on this if you want to do some further study called The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. A uh, thorough explanation of the subject, but also uh, very accessible. I would strongly commend that one to you for further study. So that's the first thing that ought to be on our mind when we see that they purified themselves. The second thing <coughs> that ought to be on our mind is uh, our sinfulness and our need for purification. Now, in its historical moment at this time, uh, surely they would have been aware, hey, listen, we can't seem to obey God for more than two pages in the Bible here. We're a huge mess, uh, captivity and all those things because of it. And so they would have been aware of their need, but also going through this action again would have reminded them uh, of their need for purity in light of God's perfection. So anytime we see the holiness of God, we see our unholiness apart from Christ and we, we see that gap, and we lead to the third thing that needs to come to our minds here. Because of where we are in redemptive history and reading this wonderful book on this side of the cross, we need to look at this, and I think we need to see the beauty of the gospel. And we need to see it in a bunch of different ways. First of which is, like I mentioned before, we don't have to do this anymore. You don't have to wear special clothes to church. You don't have to take a special kind of shower before you come and worship with us. Jesus has taken care of and fulfilled all those aspects of the law. And we are ceremonially clean in Christ. All of Jesus' purity is counted on our account because of our faith and our trust in him. And we need to exult in that. We need to be thankful for that. We need to be reminded of that in passages like this. And we need to worship God because of that. We are pure and clean and cleansed in Christ. And listen, this has all kinds of implications. Let me give you just a couple. <coughs> Hebrews 10, 22 says this. Let us draw near with a true heart, full and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So we can draw near to God because we have been made ceremonially clean and purified in Christ. Think about that, friends. 
So many other religions of the world, what is their goal? Their goal is to try to get close to God through their best effort, through their good works, and so on and so forth. And yet, at the end of the day, they have no hope because they are still trying to cleanse themselves by their failed obedience. But what does Christianity say? Christianity comes along and says, listen, we know you can't make it on your own, so we're going to have Christ in your place. You put your faith and trust in him. He will cleanse you. He will forgive you of all unrighteousness. And then you get to come near uh, to the God of the universe because of what he's done and not because of what you do. He will make you clean, but you can't make yourself clean. That's the good news of the gospel, that Jesus has made us ceremonially clean. He's purified us. How about one more here? First <coughs> John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. So that means because of Jesus' purifying power, there is not a single thing that we've ever done or ever thought about doing that Jesus cannot forgive us of and make us clean from. Friends, again, no other faith system offers that kind of hope, offers that kind of grace, offers that kind of sweeping power that can go to the deepest, darkest valley of your heart. Only the good news of the gospel of Jesus can do that kind of purifying work. So in light of what we've seen here, as we've been thinking about this concept of purity and purification, let me ask you just a couple of questions. Number one, do you have the right view of the holiness of God? That he's entirely perfect, that he is entirely unique in that way? Do you need to have it expanded? Second, do you see your sin against the backdrop of the glory of the holiness of God? And finally, do you see that Jesus Christ is your only hope and that he is the most glorious hope that if we will put our faith and trust in him, he will forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If you're not sure how to answer those questions today, it could be that the Lord might be stirring in your heart that you need to be saved, that you need to be born again, that you need to come to this purifying Jesus today. And if that's taking place in your heart even now, my admonition, my encouragement to you would be to admit that you're a sinner, believe in the purifying power of Jesus, and confess your sins and commit your life to him. And then you reach out to us. You let us know because we want to help you as you begin this journey of faith. Shoot us an email, refugefranklin at gmail.com, and we want to help you any way that we can. So they've rebuilt the wall. They have celebrated around this wall. Now we see that, that, that these people have purified themselves. And look at verse 31 at what begins to happen. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs and gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall of the dung gate. And then for the next few verses, all the way down to verse 43, Nehemiah kind of gives you a play-by-play -play of who did what and who went where. And quite simply, I think the way to understand this is uh, they probably assembled at the valley gate on the west side. 
One of the choirs was led by Ezra. Verse 36 indicates that. Uh, the other was uh, Nehemiah himself. It's also interesting to note here, as verse <coughs> 31 indicates, that he switches back to the first person uh, after a lot of kind of narrator commentary. Uh, and now he is pointing out uh, kind of the theme that will hold the narrative until verse 44. <coughs> comes up several times, and it is that word of thanks. That's what this is all about. And this is not some kind of, we're doing this because we have to, we're doing this because we're grumpy about it. This theme of gladness and thanksgiving runs all the way down. And then you actually see it uh, kind of in the grand finale in verse 43. Uh, it, it shows up multiple times, a couple times as a noun, and then a few times uh, as a verb in this section. So if you want to boil down what's happening, Verse 27 describes it, and then these, or, or kind of encapsulates it, and then these verses flesh it out. It's a time of great thankfulness. Now, look at verse 43. It says, And they offered <coughs> great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Now, a couple things I want to mention here. Key in on this. It says that God had made them rejoice with great joy. And I think that's interesting because even though it's not exactly clear what he means by that, clearly there's some kind of divine work that is prompting them toward this kind of great uh, explosion of praise. And I tell you, that's good news for me because even though, just like we talked about before, we know joy is kind of the, the sphere we want to operate in and walk in, there are plenty of times we are not joyous. There are plenty of times we are not thankful. There are plenty of times there is no gladness on or about us. <laughs> and we need to know that in those moments, we need to go to God and ask for his help, and God will help us rejoice in him. So part of the good news from this passage isn't just simply, God wants you to be joyous, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, and good luck. There's no hint of that, but instead, God helps them rejoice, and that same God that helped them will help us. So if you find yourself in a particular valley today, in a particular struggle today, you are finding it particularly challenging to be joyful. Friends, just go to the Lord. Ask for help. Ask for his kindness, his mercy, his joy to well up within you, and you'll get to see what only God can do. You will get to see what Nehemiah said earlier in the book when he said, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And even though there may still be tears that dim your eyes, there may be a flutter of a song in your heart. There may be an ember of joy amidst all of the rubble of life, because God helped them rejoice and he helps us as well. Now, the other insight <coughs> that I wanted to point out here is that it says the joy of Jerusalem <coughs> was heard far away. And I think this is such a great observation because all of us know what this is like. You've been to a sporting event, basketball, football, something, uh, where, where the people, something happened, maybe somebody scored a goal, if it's soccer, they scored a touchdown, if it's playing football, and just everybody erupts with great joy. And you can hear it. You can hear it in the parking lot. You can hear it 
uh, over the cacophony of the traffic around the stadium. And, and it's just such a, a profound, visceral experience. It seems that that was what was happening that day around Jerusalem, that the people's shouts of praise could be heard even a distance away. And I just think that's profound. I don't, I don't think that we necessarily need to be praising God so that other people will hear us. But man, isn't that amazing that when we praise God, other people do hear us? And one of the things that I think is, is very profound is that as we seek to be these people of gladness and thankfulness and joy and so on, that is one of the distinctives of Christianity. Because if the last couple of years have taught us anything, you cannot put your hope in the White House. And it doesn't matter who is sitting there. Because we've had people from both parties over the past few years, and guess what? Our country's still in a big mess. So hope can't come from the White House. Hope has got to come from God's house. It's got to come from Him. And Christians know that. And so one of the challenges for us in the midst of this season to seek to maintain this joy, to seek to maintain this praise, is to make sure that we are praising the right person and the right thing. Because we want our lives to reverberate the glory of God. We want them to be passionate for God so that other people can look in and, and, and hopefully say, goodness, Whatever I've built on my, my foundation on, it just seems to let me down. But you guys seem to have something different going on. You seem to have a different attitude about these things. You seem to be concerned about stuff that other people ought to be concerned about. You seem to care about these things. And that kind of outward praise that goes to God but is heard by others, it can be a powerful tool for pointing people to the gospel. So let's never lose sight of their example <clears throat> and also the significant difference that it can make. So that's the first snapshot. <clears throat> Let's look at the last one here very briefly. Verse 44. On that day, <clears throat> men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes, to gather them in as the portions by the law for the priests and for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns, for Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites, who ministered. So what's happening here is they are <coughs> making good on what they said they would. They had made God all these promises uh, just a few chapters earlier. We're going to do this now that we're back online and so on and so forth. And by God's grace, they're following through. <coughs> and one of those things uh, is revealed as the next few verses unfold. It says, and they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers and were the songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So let's give me a little history lesson here. And all Israel, in the, <coughs> as in the days of Jerubbabel, Zerubbabel, rather, and in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. And so what is happening here is they are essentially tithing. They are investing in the worship and the ministry of the community of God before God and others. 
That was what the law told them to do. So they gave a portion of their income, and part of what it funded was uh, these people to do this work. <coughs> and from a New Testament standpoint, uh, that's part of why we give today. Uh, it is a good thing. It is a godly thing to have people that devote uh, the, the, the lion's share of their time to doing similar, not same, but similar work uh, that happened so long ago. Uh, and, and in this church, I happen to be that guy. Uh, this is my full-time job. And so people's tithes and offerings uh, free me up to be able to do that. And I am glad to be able to do it. It's one of the greatest joys that I have every, every week to sit down and to, to, to labor over the text and read commentaries and listen to other preachers and, and, and form these sermons that are then presented to us on Sunday. And the functional reality is, is it is our collective giving that frees me up to do that. And I give to this church like anybody else in the church would. Uh, and it's the, the, the best and most joyous check that I send every month. Uh, and I would say that even if I wasn't the pastor, because to be able to invest money in the mission of God and the word of God going out, I mean, honestly, what better thing can we do with our money? Because in 10,000 years, it's going to matter. It's going to matter that we were entrusting a portion of what is ultimately God's money anyway. I mean, he owns it all. We're just stewarding it for a small season. What better thing could we do than invest in the ministry of the word and in the ministry of the gospel going forward? And so we see the Old Testament version of that happening here, and then we experience the New Testament version of that in our lives. And passages like this uh, give us an opportunity to evaluate where we're at with that. And if you're not regularly investing in your local church uh, for the propagation of the gospel and the ministry of the word, passage like this invites you to get in on it. You need to get in on this. You need to invest in your local church. You need to be uh, blessing your local church so that it can be a blessing to others. Uh, because, you know, paying your pastor, that's only one of the things that we do with money at the church. But we also do the other ministries that we do. We also uh, help out various people, and, and we've been able to help out quite a bit uh, uh, in a various set of ways over the past year or so, and it's our giving that helps make that possible. And so we will see how they started out faithfully here, how that continues next week and as the story continues to unfold. But part of what we need to take from it here is, is we need to learn from their example. They were faithful to give back a portion of what God gave to them for the advancement of the kingdom of God in their day, and we need to be faithful to do the same. So let's wrap all this up here. How does all this get us to Jesus? Well, some of it we've talked a little bit. I certainly see the theme of purification there. I can't look at that and not see Christ. But I even see this notion here of what we're talking about with the, the last set of ideas uh, of this person or these people that uh, they invest and they do it with gladness. And I think that Jesus should be the reason for our gladness in our giving to the church and in all of our lives. 
because all of us do struggle at times to give joyfully. All of us do struggle at times to have joy in the midst of very difficult circumstances. All of us struggle at times to be thankful when there's a lot of hard stuff going on. But friends, Jesus speaks to all those needs because the reason we give generously is because God gave Jesus for us generously. The reason we can have joy is because Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross for us. The reason that we can have any sense of thanksgiving is because Jesus was always thankful and he never failed, even when we fail. And so as we look at Nehemiah, as we see this wall we rebuilt, as we see these good things happening in this passage, it should necessarily point us to the best thing that ever happened, and that is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So if you struggle in any of these areas today, Jesus is your helper. If you succeed in any of these areas today, Jesus is your helper. Whatever it is that you're facing now or will come down the pipe this week, Jesus is your helper. Friends, where do you most need his help today? Wherever that may be, let's go to him now and let's ask for what only God can do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time that we've had in your word. We pray that you would indeed help us and strengthen us and give us grace for the road ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.